Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is where we are in our study of the security of the believer. Now, let's, let's look at a couple of things here today, particularly as we go into this, but I, I step back just for a second and say that what I am sharing with you, and I have been since January, Romans chapter 8, I think we will finish it this year, Romans chapter 8. If not, we've got next year. We can let it spill over a little bit there, too, if we must. But this is not, I'm not preaching to you our doctrinal statement. All right? I'm a firm believer in the security of the believer. All right? It's stated in our, in our literature. We believe that. This is not a, a series on our doctrinal statement. This is a series on what God says He does for us. This is how He loves us. And the whole chapter is expressing that to us, week after week after week after week. And I hope by this point, at least we're in verse 29 now, that we have come to the place to understand, yes, God loves me. How many other ways can he convince you if, if you struggle with that simple phrase? All that we have seen so far in his expression of love for us, still we know that the, the the greatest of them all is that he gave his son for us. That was God's demonstration of his great love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's in the book of Romans 2. Sometimes we do chapter 5, maybe. Love that chapter. But I can't get out of this chapter either. And when we get into verse number 29, we're continuing on the paragraph that says we're secure in his plan. And it's very good to know First, that he has a plan. He does. And number two, that we have security in that plan. And those are the things we're going to see today in verse 29. You can see it as I read it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. I don't know how many times I've referenced this verse in the last six years. I wasn't keeping track. But I know it's not uncommon for me to go back to this verse and say, what is he doing? He's conforming us to the image of his son. Right now, that's what he's doing. He's conforming us to the image of his son. And I always add this when I say that. He will not fail. He will not fail. What you saw in the mirror this morning when you got up, you may say, oh, I don't know about that, Lord. He will not fail. He will not fail. The beautiful verse that goes with this is what John says. First John 3, where he says that we don't know yet what we shall be, but we do know when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's a sure thing. That's an amazing thing. Well, we're going to bask in that today, okay? I can't wait to... Uh, matter of fact, I have to tell you the truth. I was thinking of doing verse 29 in one week. Impossible. We've got to break this one up. There's just too much. So let's ask the Lord for his help as we go into it. Heavenly Father, you are so very good to us to not only love us like you do, but to put it in print so that we can see it over and over and 
Lord, you know how weak we are. You know how we lose our attention, we lose our, our focus, we, we look upon ourselves, we look upon our world, we look upon our problems, we see our aches, we see our pains, we see our failures, and we start to doubt. And you are so faithful to show us again how much you love us. Such an astounding love it is. Such a wonderful and welcome love it is. We need it. And we need to hear it again. And I know everything that we go through in this passage today will be shouting those words from your mouth to our heart. You love us. You love us. And we thank you, Lord, for it. Help us to grasp it more fully as we go through this passage today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The main statement from verse number 28, 29, and 30 is right there in verse number 28. God causes all things to work together. In the Greek phrase, to a good thing. He's got a good thing. We say, well, that's kind of general. Oh, not when you start adding the rest of the verses to it, and you understand what that good thing is. But he calls us all things to work together to a good thing. I love the fact that my God is in charge. He's orchestrating this. The good things, as we talked about last week, or even all things, are not what's governing my steps. If it was, we'd be in chaos. I don't want to be directed by all things. I want to be directed by the Lord. And God causes all things to work together to a good thing to those that love Him. We talked about that last week. You can follow that up. We do have it on our website now. But I anticipate something today. I anticipate questions. And maybe those questions were in your heart last week. Concerning these all things. You know, sometimes when we start to add up what is included in all things, it gets a little scary, doesn't it? But there's a lot of things out there that are not good. We would say uh, hard things. Difficult things, challenging things, stretching things. Sometimes it's hard to trust in the midst of those things. To step back and say, yes, God causes all things to work together for good. It's hard sometimes. But there's more questions than just that. The other questions are, what is this good thing? that he's aiming for. How could all these work together to bring us to that good thing? And what is that good thing? Well, we're going to talk about that good thing today. I believe that's what we have in verse 29 and verse number 30. And I think Paul, as he speaks this, he's anticipating our questions. Kind of like we're little children again. He's going to explain God's plan. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many many brethren. And those, or these, whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow! You're in for Theology 101 in the next three or four weeks. Just incredible words popping off the page here. But note this. This is God's activity. All the way through it says, He knew 
He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. Let's keep the emphasis there, okay? This is the actions that he's involved in. One commentary said these are the five links to the chain of salvation. And I thought, well, what are those? Well, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. One commentary said those are the five chains that you could understand salvation by. But let's think very big today. All right? Let's think very big. Because sometimes when we say salvation... We limit it to the day that we responded to the gospel message. We, we have a date in mind. We have a place in mind. We have a, an individual in mind who talked to us about our relationship with the Lord. Sometimes we do that, don't we? You say, well, I was saved in July of 1976. That'd be my story. July of 1976. And we talk about salvation as a historical event. We marked it on our calendar. We, we celebrate it sometimes if we remember year by year. But what if, that's what happens when you see salvation with our eyes. What if we look at salvation from God's eyes today? I told you, you've got to think big today. You ready? I don't think we fit the shoes, to tell the truth. We're going to try. We're at least going to climb into them and see what happens. Um, let's talk about God's plan. Not only in reference to our salvation, but his great plan is so much bigger than saving us from our sin. Did you hear it? It's so much bigger than that. Yes, that's part of it. That's part of it. But the reality is, he saved us for himself. He saved us for himself. See, your salvation... My salvation was for His glory. Oh, as much as we enjoy it, it was for His glory. I'll show you a verse before we dive into Romans again. Go back to Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians 1. We've been in this passage before. I'm just going to pound it one more time, okay? In Ephesians 1, verse number 5. It says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's why He did it. To the praise of the glory of His grace. And then, as if it's verse number 2 of the same song, verse number 11 We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. You know what? That's Romans 8.28 right there. Did you just see it? Where it says He works all things, you know, He causes all things to to work toward a good thing. Here it is. He's predestined according to the purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Here's the reason. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Now, if two times doesn't convince you, how about three? Third verse starts in verse 13. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise 
of His glory. Every single time He brought up salvation and what it means to us, He turned around and said, but it's for God's glory. For God's glory. For God's glory. I love those phrases together. Because even when we get into verse chapter 2 of this same book, one more thing to show you, chapter 2, starting in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, ooh, I think tingle starts, so oh, it comes. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Forever, you are a display of God's love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Forever you are to his glory. Forever. I just... Picture this, and it probably isn't exactly the way it's going to work, but you haven't been there, neither have I. Up in heaven someday, maybe one of the angels says, what does grace look like? And God's going to point right at you. Say, that's what grace can do. That's what grace can do. You're a display of God's glory. That's an amazing thing, and I want to set that before you today as we go into verse number 29. Because God's plan is so big... You have to put that into the perspective here. God is at work. That's what Paul's trying to explain. God is at work. He's causing all things to work together according to this plan. And you say, well, how? How can it be? Why? Why did he do this? Why is his motive? Why does he do such things? I, I'm going to suggest those as our questions right now. As we go into the passage, how can this be? Why did he do this? And what is his motive? I, I tried to put myself in the place of a child to, you know, maybe this child has just received a unexpected and a wonderful gift. And they start asking questions. Why? Now, the younger they are, more likely they're just going to take it and play with it. Or the box. They're set it aside and play with the box. But, uh, but when they're a little more capable of dialogue, they say, why? 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 You had children. I don't even have to go far with this illustration, and I know it's going to hit the mark already. We had a child that couldn't stop talking. Once he learned how to put sentences together, there was no end to it. No end to it. Talk, 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 talk. We, we got to a place, because the questions were so heavy, that we said, you're allowed to ask ten questions today. We were worn out with trying to answer them all. It was just impossible. Why? 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 It was just, you've been there, you know? It's like, woo! That could, that could wear you out. But the Lord is so kind to us, you know? When, 
He doesn't limit us on the question. He's not like a, a parent like me. He doesn't limit the questions. He doesn't say, I've had enough. You know, I wrote it down. If you just don't, if you're not going to read it, I'm not going to, you know. He doesn't do that. He says, ask the questions. I'll answer you. We can ask these questions as we go into this passage. Uh, uh, this is an explanation. Assuming that we have questions about God's plan, and I know we do, and how? How did we end up in the middle of all this? Why us? You know, there's, what, 7 billion people in this world? That's a lot of people. Why us? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? Paul's first word in verse number 29, most of our translation says, for... I think almost everyone in English does. Uh, it's been that way since 1382. That's a long time ago. John Wycliffe, he's writing it in English for the first time out of the Latin text, and he writes down four. And everyone said, okay. They all went with four. Are you going to be surprised if I tell you there's a better word? It's a Greek word, hapti. I love that little word, hapti. It means because it's, it's, it's going to answer something. That's what it's meant to do. It's to explain what was just said. Because, and I find it interesting because some of the newer translations, the more recent ones, are starting to insert the word because in there. They say, okay, because. That, that does set up the question and answer situation. The, the statement was made that God's at work. The questions that rise, how and why and what? And so Paul says, because. And so he's going to answer it with these next couple of verses. I'll show you how simple it is. Today it's this simple. When I ask the question, how can this be? How can this be? It says God is working together all things into a good thing according to his plan. And I say, how could that be? And he says, because he foreknew me. I say, oh. Now what's that mean? <laughs> what does it mean that he foreknew me. It does say that at the beginning of verse number 29, doesn't it? For those whom he foreknew. Uh, because he foreknew. Because he foreknew. God is at work in you. That work is huge. It's bigger than you. It's me. It's, it's longer than time itself. We could talk a lot about God's power in saving us. And that's incredible. Because the, according to Scripture, the same power that saved you is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's an astounding thing to think through. But set that to the side for a minute because I want to discuss His knowledge in saving you. Usually we say His wisdom. I'm going to say it this way. His knowledge in saving you. In saving you. There was a discussion I had many, many years ago. A good friend of mine, uh, he, he gets into big theological words. He says, are you a uh, sublapterianist or are you an infralapterianism kind of follower? And I said, I said, I believe God saved me. He says, good answer. I said, okay, well, what are those words? <laughs> I, I've got a doctorate in theology. 
And those big words are like, ooh, what is that? The basic idea is this. Did God save you because he saw that you were going to respond to him by faith? And he says, okay, I'll save that one because he's going to respond. Or did God choose you and your response is because he chose you first? And you say, okay, let's go to an easier topic. He foreknew. That's what the word says. He foreknew. Um, matter of fact, you medical people out there, you love this. It's a medical term, prognosis. That's, that's the idea of a prediction, the course. In the medical world, I guess, I, I pulled this off Wikipedia, it must be right. Uh, the prediction of the course of a disease. The, the, it comes from the idea of pro, which is before, and gnosis, which is knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean they came to a conclusion before they thought about it. That, that's not prognosis. Right? That's not before knowledge stepped in. Uh, this is, this is a, a probable outcome. This is what it literally says, uh, this text. Keep in mind that it's only a probable outcome and not a sure thing. Uh, that's okay. Uh, that's man's perspective. That's the best we can do. Really. That's the best we can do. It's not the way God uses the word, though. God is not in doubt about your future. God, God is not looking down the road and saying, you know, this is the probable outcome. Well, it's not a sure thing. I would hate to find that verse in my Bible. I, wouldn't, I, I just couldn't swallow such a thing. That would be contradictory to the rest of the text. Because God does know. God does know. The meaning of this phrase is that He knows. It's, it's marked. It's very clear. He knows. In Psalm chapter 1, it says, He knows the way of the righteous. Does he? Absolutely so. In, in Psalm 144, the psalmist is asking a question, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Because if we describe man from Scripture, he's a worm. He's a fading flower. He's a vapor. He's here today, gone tomorrow. Not only that, he's sinful. He's God's enemy. He's helpless. He's hopeless. And the best he can do in righteousness is a dirty rag. What is man that God should take knowledge of him? What an incredible question that is. And that's what we are. We're asking, why does he think so much about us? Why, why is that the case? Um, in Psalm 144, verse 4, the very next verse after that question is, man is... Like a mere breath, his days are like passing shadow. You see, here's what the point is, and I'll get to this. God's knowledge can't simply mean that he knows you exist. It's not that. Sometimes you say, well, yeah, God knows. And it's almost like a distant uh, it's like an unattached knowledge. It's, uh, it's like you, you know who was the first baseman for the New York Yankees, maybe. Maybe you don't. But, but you would say, oh, I know. I know that individual. I know that name. I, I know that person. If I throw out a name, you could attach it to something, perhaps. God's knowledge is not like that. It's not defined that way in Scripture. Now, does he know you exist? Yes. 
but wait till you see how deep it goes. This is what we're going to see. In Matthew 7, verse 23, Jesus defined the idea of knowledge. He defined it in this way. He says, not everyone who says to me, in verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will just say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, but I never knew you. Those are heavy words, folks. They never had a relationship with Him. They did things, but they didn't know Him. They didn't have a relationship with Him. He says, I didn't have that with you. Heaven's not going to be full of a bunch of people who've done good things. It's going to be full of people who know the Lord. That's what we see. That's the relationship we talk about. That's knowledge. And it's quite a bit different than just acknowledging their existence. You see, in all the places that I can take you to today, and I, I've got a handful of verses, but these are, these are what it comes down to. This word of knowing is to take note of something, to take note of something, to fix the regard upon something, someone. It's to know them before. You said before what? Before. It's to know them before. And I would say before we were here, before we did anything. There's a, there's a big concept to that. We'll get to that in a minute. But this is what I, I've read. When Paul states that to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good, he is not thinking only of those things that can be seen round about us now, or those events that are taking place now, no, he includes even time and eternity. The chain of salvation he is discussing reaches back to that which, considered from a human standpoint, could be called the dim past, the quiet recess of eternity, and forward into the boundless future. Now that means his knowledge of you, and I'm not going to be clinical, I'm not going to be just a somebody who's expressing words that are a doctrinal statement or such like that. I'm talking about a personal knowledge of you. It goes to all the way back before this world was ever made. Is that too big? Ephesians 1 says he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, is that just a random concept or is that attached to tr- the truth of that personal thing God knows of you. I'm not going to treat theology like it's just random concepts. But here's what it says. Before the foundation of the world, not only did he choose you, but his son, even at that point, was considered slain from the foundation of the world. The plan was so set That even his crucifixion, which came in many centuries later, thousands of years later after that, it was so secure in that. Not only did God see you, 
choose you. Christ died for you, and all that was arranged. But your eternity was developed, is that point too. All the way into the future, he thought that huge of you. There's a little song we used to sing as kids called, I was in his mind before the world began. And beautiful little song, but it's kind of haunting too. The melody is kind of haunting. And as you go through that song, you say, that's incredible love, Lord. Really? Did you know me that long? Have you, have you thought of me that long? It's so big to understand. I would rather that be where I struggle than where people are trying to make us struggle today and think that God does not know the future. There are those, and I've told you this before, uh, who teach open theology. The basic idea is that God does not know your future. That frightens me. To tell the truth, it frightens me. It's like having a driver for your car and he doesn't know where he's going. And he doesn't even know how to drive. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, their, their basic concept is God doesn't have omniscience. They hate the word omni anyway, in front of any word. And they try to whittle that down to make God more on our level and we're more on his level. And I could see what they're doing with that. And it's wrong. But they see what they're doing with that. And so they say, he can't possibly know the future. He can't possibly know the future. Matter of fact, your events of this day surprise him as much as they surprise you. I say, I don't like it. I just don't like that. Well, one day there was a man that came into my office when I was in Warsaw, Indiana, and he had a manila envelope full of that doctrine in, in all kinds of manuscripts and all that. And he sat down and he said, I, I want to talk to you about the openness of God and all this. And he started in on the conversation. And he's using all sorts of philosophical concepts and all that. I mean, really, when you try to understand theology from human perspective, you're going to fill it with only what man can think. There's limitations in that. A lot of limitations in that. And that's what he was doing. He was just piling all this stuff on me. And so I just started to leap through my Bible, waiting for the moment. And I found it. I went over to Isaiah. I'll read to you what I saw. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. And as he's talking, he's talking, God can't possibly know the future. He doesn't know the next day. He doesn't know the day after that. And so I go to Isaiah 44, and I pull up verse 28. And I say, I want to read you something. And I said this, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desires. He will declare, and he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And I said, Boy, that'll get him. What is that? Cyrus? Who's Cyrus? You ask Isaiah, he says, I have no idea. Why? Cyrus was born 200 years later. God not only knew Cyrus, he knew him by name. He called him Cyrus before his mom or his dad said, let's call him Cyrus. God had already named him Cyrus. God said he'd be my shepherd. And that's an interesting term. He's going to be a king, and he's going to be led by the Lord to do something absolutely remarkable, and that is he's going to make a declaration that the temple would be built. You say, okay, okay, that's good. 
Put yourself in Isaiah's day. There wasn't a Cyrus. Matter of fact, the kingdom he was going to reign wasn't in charge. And on top of that, the temple was still there. Who would have predicted that the kingdoms would change from Assyria to Babylon to Persia, where Cyrus would be? And who ever thought that the temple of God would be destroyed and needed rebuilt? 200 years before that fact, God named it perfectly on the page. Said Cyrus, by name, is the one I chose. I appointed him. He's going he's gonna to be my right hand. He's going to do it. He's going to set that up. And you say, well, that was a good guess, God. That was a pretty good guess. In chapter 45, in verse 1, he did it again. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, or loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Uh, God already had a plan for Cyrus before Cyrus existed. Zechariah comes on the scene 200 years later. Zechariah is standing there, and he hears Cyrus say, Go back and build the temple. <laughs> Cyrus, by name, go build the temple. Isaiah didn't even know it was coming, but God did. Now let me ask you, who was omniscient? Who knew the next day, the next year, the next 200 years? <laughs> I, I told that to that man, I, and he says, you know what? I'm going to have to go study that passage. So, oh, Yeah. <laughs> Because that just blew your whole theory to pieces, didn't it? It doesn't work to say that God doesn't know when he does know. Now, does it surprise you that God is omniscient? I know it's too big for us, but does it surprise you that God is omniscient? I'm going to put three words together and see what the results are for you. You can put your word in here, but this is it. He knows me. Put omniscient in that picture. And what doesn't he know about you? Mm -hmm. Okay. You ready for good stuff? Yes, you are. Psalm 139. I love this passage. 139. I am coming back to Romans, okay? But Psalm 139. He knows me. That is the three words you need for this entire text. But I'm only going up to verse uh, 18. Psalm 139. O Lord, David says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, before, before, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Now, you're pretty much surrounded with that picture, by the way. If his hand is behind you and his hand is in front of you and his hand is above you, picture that. You're trapped, if you like it, or you're secure, if you like that better. I do. So, his hand is all around us. Such knowledge, verse 6 says, is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in a grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me, because he knows where you are. I added that, but that's the point. He knows where you are. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My friend was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Whoa! Did you just see that? God's written your biography. He wrote it. Even before there was one of them. Now, in case you're saying, okay, that's, that's getting pretty involved. Verse 17 says, how precious also are your thoughts to me. All of a sudden, he just bathed the whole thing in love, didn't he? How precious are your thoughts to me. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I'm still with you. What a precious precious set of words these are. This is what God thinks of you, folks. This is what God thinks of you, what He thinks of me. And when we get to this Romans passage, and it says, God is at work, yes. He's working all things according to a master plan, yes. And it's going to be a great thing that comes out of it, yes. And we say, why? And it says, because He knows you. That's his first answer. Because he knows you. I have to stop and think, okay, does that mean he knows what I'd do with it if I was in charge? He knows what I would make of it if I was in charge? More times than not, this is the way I I picture my life, if, if I could do it this way. I'm given a ball of yarn, and I take all day long to tie it into a bunch of knots. And then at the end of the day, I turn around and say, Lord, fix this. You ever feel like that? That's all you've done with your life is just tear it all up, you hand it back and say, Doc, can you make something of this? He, he always has a great way of untying things, doesn't he? But in this, this, that's just a little weird thought. But in this, this is not about you in charge. This is about the one who knows you is in charge. He knows you so thoroughly, inside and out. He knows you so perfectly. In every way, he says these things to us. He, one translation in, in the definition of the words is that he has active delight in me. Those are pretty intense words. Active delight in me. He set his love on me. So it stands to reason, if he loves me that much, he must know me that well. And that's why he's working. Because he loves me. He knew me. It's his divine active delight. It's his sovereign good pleasure that he should do this. In Jeremiah, he says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
before you were born, I set you apart. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. In Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, Paul just simply says, the Lord knows who are his. He knows. Here's the, here's the fact of the word you've been looking at today. For new. It, it reveals the fact that in his purpose, according to election, the persons are not just objects of God's bare foreknowledge, but of his active delight. His active delight. You say, well, how can this be? Well, it's because God's are working all things together for good to those who love him, because he foreknew them. And we could turn that around the other way, too. It's because he foreknew them. He's working all things together for good to those that love him. You can't separate the terms. And that's why it's hard to preach one verse without the other verse. They, they're not to be separated. It's in his knowledge and his love for you that he's at work in you. And he's at work in you because of his knowledge and his love for you. Now, bask in that for a while, okay? I haven't even touched point two or three yet. Our time's all up. But I'll give you a whole week to think about this. To think about this. God knows you. Wow. Heavenly Father, it's too big for us. But we're so glad to hear it. I'm glad you don't just feed us on the terms of what our minds can understand. For then we'll be fed milk, soggy bread. But when you lay the feast before us like this, you set before us the finest of the, of the entrees. You, you have set before us the steaks. You set before us such a bounty. Lord, it's not because we have in any way deserved that love. But it's because you love that you have done this for us. It's incredible to try to comprehend, Lord. And you are really the only one who can make that application in our hearts today. For we can try all we want with human words to try to express what is divine. And we can't do it. But you being our great God, you can put these down into thoughts, into words into applications in each of our lives that will encourage us, that will strengthen us, that will convince us how secure we are in your plan. And so we come to you and ask as we submit to you to take these words and write them on our heart with permanent ink that we might not forget them and we might learn to live by them. We've been challenged with it, and we thank you, Lord, for it. What a great God you are. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.